Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 194 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Uh, this week, our Director of Research and Trading, Nick Whitaker, filling in for Matt since he is out of town. So welcome back, Nick. <laughs> it's been so long that you forgot so to put the mic in front of your face. On. It's good to be here. Yeah, good. Good. I looked at you. I'm like, something's wrong here. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So spring is in the air, Nick. We're at the end of Q1 of 2023. Uh, Obviously, just one more day in tomorrow since there's 31 days in March. Opening day for the MLB. Baseball's back. Um, So hopefully warmer weather and sunnier weather is just around the corner. It feels like it. Spring's in the air. Yeah. From where you moved from, it's probably already a little warmer there than, Uh, uh, than it is here. I'm sure. But uh, the opposite for me. So being from upstate New York, I was talking to my parents yesterday and uh, it got up to 50 yesterday in Rochester. But then by like six o'clock at night, it was snowing. So Uh, definitely, definitely don't miss that. So um, but as always, uh, Nick, before we begin, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track And these numbers are as of the market close on March 29th, and this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index up 1.5% for the month and up 4.9% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 0.2% for the month, down 1.3% for the year. NASDAQ Composite Index up 4.1% for the month and up 13.9% for the year. The uh, iShares Russell 2000 ETF, ticker symbol IWM, uh, down 6.8% for the month, but still up 0.6% for the year. Then the Vanguard All World X United States ETF is up 1.1% for the month and up 5.1% for the year. Three month treasury rate at 4.8%, the two year treasury rate at 4.08%, and the 10 year treasury at 3.57%. Uh, moving on to big headlines, current events, Nick. Really, I think the main thing is that this chop fest in the market just continues on. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is markets can, in my opinion, have three different directions. We can be in an uptrend, we can be in a downtrend, or we could just be moving sideways, right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we've seen. And I'll have Jenna throw this uh, graphic up on uh, the YouTube video and in our show notes, but it's a chart of the S&P 500 uh, going back um, to mid-2021. And as you can see, Nick, really since April, May of 2022, so almost a full year, the S&P 500 has just traded in this range Uh, between the 4,300 level and the 3,500 level. And to me, what that tells me is there's just a lot of indecision for investors right now. There's not enough people that are convinced one way or another to to push this thing higher or lower. Um, And again, this has just been trading in in this range of about 20% higher and lower for about a year now. 
um, which is it's it's a frustrating market for a lot of people, I think, um, especially after we've had you know the market come in in, in 2022. Uh, you know, I think people have been expecting the market to just have a V-shaped recovery, but a lot of the times it's not like that. And it takes some basing, uh, some consolidation, some sideways movement mm -hmm. before we, we some, move back higher some again. Some reallocations in the market. You see yeah. some sector allocations changing. Yeah. I'll, I'll steal one of your lines to Please. add on there. Um, which is that this this type of trading I would say is normal when you look at the context of history over over multi-year charts, yeah. right? So, you know, I know we would love the V-shaped recovery. Um, it's it's easier to stomach like the COVID, you know, the right. drop and it comes right back really quick. That's obviously uh, preferable for investors looking at their their retirement and their savings and everything. Um, I would just add that you know, like you like you remind listeners often this is this is normal this is just the type of market we're in right now yeah yeah absolutely um moving on to uh tweets articles and research from this week uh first thing i had was a tweet from money visuals which is a uh, social media account run by our friend ashby daniels who we've had on the podcast before um so money visuals tweeted this on march 23rd he says, when investors say that stocks are risky, what they mean to say is that stocks are volatile, which is true. And again, I think that's a big differentiator, Nick, that people often get confused. And again, in my opinion, uh, and I think this is the consensus in the industry, is that risk and volatility are two different things, right? Volatility is you know, how much something fluctuates and mm -hmm. goes up and down, right? Risk is, in my opinion, the permanent loss of capital. Um, so it's important to have those two different distinctions. Uh, but he says the market on average goes up three out of every four years. And the result of these three good years for every one that's bad has been an annualized return of about 10% per year. Everybody knows this, yet despite this consistent long-term return, people fear equities because of how they perform every fourth year. And I thought that this was uh, fitting, it being opening day for the MLB, Nick. <laughs> Translating this to another field, imagine thinking a baseball player who hits 750 is as bad, excuse me, who hits 750 as a bad hitter simply because he strikes out swinging at three balls in the dirt every fourth at-bat. So every three out of four at-bats, the batter gets a hit. That's yeah. that's unheard of in the MLB. Not, I think it's a not, really good year yeah. if you're batting over 300, that you oh, get a hit out of three out of every 10 at-bats. That's a great year. Yeah. Right? That's a crazy thought, isn't it? As it is with thinking of equities as risky. In the lifetime of investors age 65 today, equities are up 97 times, excluding dividends. Yet the reputation for stocks being risky persists. Could it be that the way we view stocks has much more to do with how we describe them as risky instead of what is actually accurate? Simply that they are volatile, but that volatility has been well worth it in the long run. If we want to make better decisions with our money, we may need to unwind how we talk about what we own. So um, again, I, I just thought that this was really good and it just made me chuckle with it being opening day today. Um, Three out of four, that's, you know, 75% of the time, you know, yeah, markets are, are, are up, um, which is really good. But I think it's hard, and I get it, right? It's hard to look past what the current situation is right now. And what's the current situation? We just had the worst year in the market since the great financial crisis. Yeah. 
and everyone's anchored to that and they yeah. forget what happened and you know the recovery after covid and they forget what happened between 2016 and 2020 right yeah. that low volatile environment yeah um nice which, linear chart there yeah i know which is great which is just two steps forward one step back type of environment um which i have no doubt that we're going to get back to that it just might take some time um you know and i think this is kind of relates to another thing that we talk about on here a lot is that i think people spend too much time preparing for the bad times and they don't spend enough time preparing for the good times mm -hmm. and as ashby points out you know, on average, about every three or four years, the market's up. So we, yeah. we need to prepare for the good times, too. Absolutely. So I really like the, the comment. Yeah, the, he's, the he's idea, done some good stuff. If people don't follow around him. Changing that some of that jargon that, you know, we're all guilty of it in finance of just tossing jargon around. But that's a that's a great point because we often I, I myself have said, that, oh, you know, equities are a riskier. Yeah, me too. I said I say that. But, you know, there are, of course, ranges of risk within equities mm -hmm. um, but a generalized uh statement it's definitely better to say they're more volatile asset absolutely absolutely like um second thing i had was a blog post from michael batnick on march 27th uh, in regards to the fed so he says it's been a rough couple of weeks in parentheses months slash years question mark for one of the most powerful entities in the entire world and he's return uh, referring to the federal reserve yeah. first they were too late to raise rates then they raised them too much leading to some of the biggest blow-ups in the banking industry uh, that this country has ever witnessed you would think that the recent events would cause them to pause and reassess the damage but no they went ahead with another 25 basis points uh hike anyway even though this market is telling them to stop and maybe even cut. So what Michael's referring to is that last week, the Fed still raised rates by 0.25%, uh, mm -hmm. okay? And before everything unfolded with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank with those banks, you know, blowing up, people were withdrawing money out of there that they, they couldn't control the deposit, which, or the, the depositors withdrawing their money, um, before all that happened, the forecast was for the Fed to hike rates by 0.5%, yeah, so double than what yeah. they actually ended up doing. Mm -hmm. um, and in my opinion, Nick, the Fed still had to raise rates by some amount to keep everyone, and again, what I think is to keep the markets calm, because I think the markets would have freaked out if they didn't hike rates at all. And if they didn't hike rates at all last week, me as an investor looking at that is like, okay, just like three weeks ago, the forecast for was for you guys to hike rates by half a percent. Mm -hmm. And now just in a span of under a month, you're not doing anything. Right. My first thought is, okay, there's something wrong with what, the system. What's and they, up with the fundamentals? Right. What's and they on? know something yeah. that the rest of the public doesn't know because yeah. you don't just go from a half a percent yeah. raising to not doing anything unless yeah. there's a serious problem. Yeah. Um, so in my opinion, I, they had to do something. Um, I, I think that honestly, from my point of view, they're probably done hiking at this point. Um, yeah, the market thinks so as well. I actually have some research on that too. Yeah, so great. Well, I, I won't up. say anything more on it, but <laughs> again, I, I think they had to do something or else people would have start to become very concerned that there was something else beneath the surface that no one else could see that's yeah. going wrong. I think you're hundred percent correct. And I think, uh, 
there was a lot of talk in, in Europe about the same same situation where the ECB came out, and this is after you know Credit Suisse is looking for more money and, mm -hmm. and scrambling for funds, and uh, you know the, a couple of days later uh, the ECB hiked by 50 basis points. So they did the same thing, and and exactly for the reason that that you're saying. Yeah, a lot of it is a lot of it is optics, right? Yep. Um, last but not least, uh, have a tweet from uh, our friend Ryan Dietrich on March 28th, uh, and he said this, here are the previous 36 times the S&P 500 did not close beneath the December lows during Q1. This usually means good things. This is about to happen in 2023. And again, we'll have Jenna throw this uh, graphic up for everybody on the YouTube video and in the show notes. but. It's a uh, chart of every time that the S&P 500 stayed above its December lows in Q1. And this kind of goes back to the things that we usually talk about, Nick, um, on the podcast with clients and prospects in the, be the end of the year and the beginning of the new year. Um, mm -hmm. the, the trifecta, as we refer to them as. So we have the Santa Claus rally. Um, the January barometer uh, in the first five days of January. Those are the three main ones that we look at just to get an idea of possibly how the yeah. next year could play out, right? And the fourth less talked about indicator is the December low indicator. And all that is, is what we look for to indicate that we're gonna have a strong rest of the year is did the S&P 500 in Q1 close below its December lows? And in this instance, it has not. We still have two more trading days, which I've seen crazier things, so it wouldn't surprise me if we ended up closing below the December lows. But at this point, we're holding above it. And what Ryan's pointing out here is that the performance for the full year for the S&P 500 historically has been extremely strong when we stay above those December lows. Uh, and to give people an idea about that, I think there's around 36 different instances uh, going all the way back to 1950 uh, when S&P 500 uh, closes above uh, the December lows, doesn't undercut the lows made earlier in the year. Average return has been just above 18.5% uh, on average. And there's only been two times where the full year performance for the S&P 500 has been negative. That was 2011 and 2015. Market was flat in 2011, and in 2015, it was down less than uh, 1%. So using, again, history as our guide like we, like we do, uh, looking at these instances, Nick, 94% of the time when this happens, the market's positive by the year and usually well into the green. Mm -hmm. And that's going through multiple decades and multiple major events through decades. I think you've sent around a chart recently about looking at all the different major events that happened over the past. I think that chart went back to the 1940s, mm -hmm. but you know, the seventies are in here, high inflation. Um, you've got the early, the, the mid two thousands, you've got Clinton yeah, impeachment, got Clinton impeachment. Yeah. I mean, wars, there's, there's all kinds of of major events. So I know that Silicon Valley was a major event and felt like that, but major events can happen and the markets can still take off. Right. So. Still taking in stride. So yeah. again, just 
taking a step back, looking at the data, uh, we've talked about usually how strong these pre-election years are, uh, the third year of the four-year presidential cycle. Uh, this just adds to that. So on top of people being ex extremely bearish, sentiment is really low. Um, you know, could surprise some people uh, if we see some strength over the next, you know, six to eight months. You could. I hope so. Yeah, same, same. So I'll toss it over to you. Yeah, so I'm going to start with just a, a recap of, of recent volatility in the equity markets. Um, and I know we've, we've covered this a little bit in, in previous podcasts, but I was reading an article last night, and I saw a great chart. And, then, and I wanted to throw this chart on, uh, throw this chart up for listeners, because I think it does a good job of illustrating why are we having such chop in the markets right now and how quickly things can change from even a day-to-day -day basis. And, and we talk about the Fed and the Fed rate hikes a lot. Why do we talk about it so much over, the, over this year? And it's because these things are changing so constantly because the narrative is changing a little bit. So this chart, it's kind of a tricky chart. Jenna will throw it up. But the, it, it shows the, the two-week turmoil, so to speak, from March 6th to uh, March 16th. And that was kind of right before Silicon Valley Bank and all that news, and then kind of once we got to the resolution of, um, with First Republic, right? And so the chart is showing the implied number of 25 basis point hikes expected from present to each of the next eight FOMC meetings. So it's not showing the curve like we're used to seeing. It's showing, hey, at the next meeting, we expect a 25-bit hike. At the next meeting, we expect et cetera, et cetera, and it's adding from there. So in this first little mini chart up in the top left, you can see in July, the market was almost expecting four 25 basic hikes mm -hmm. from that period. And you can see day over day how this narrative changed and how drastically it changed. And so while this chart is up, I'm just going to quickly run through the highlights. On March 6th, it was a normal day. The S&P was up 1%. Uh, We're kind of a wait-and-see approach. The, uh, Chair Powell was about to go before Congress. On, on, the seventh, uh, on the seventh, he went and before Congress, uh, Fed, Fed Chair Powell, and he was pretty hawkish in the market. It's like, oh, okay, well, you see the, the expectations pop Meaning up Meaning that he, he thinks that we have to have higher rates for longer. Precisely, yeah. Tighter monetary policy. There's some more of that financial jargon. Yeah, Sorry exactly. about that, folks. Yep. Uh, on the eighth, uh, you, you get some, some news from, from Silvergate. Um, Fed, Fed Chair Powell's on there again. On the 9th, S and, uh, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, falls 60%. Uh, on the 13th, uh, the Fed and the Treasury are, are prepping the lending program, and that was after the weekend, and, and you can see that's when things really start to change on the 13th. The 15th, then we have some news with Credit Suisse I mentioned about earlier. Um, Swiss National Bank came in with 50, 50 some million dollars or billion dollars for them. And the 16th, the ECB raise, raises rates, like I previously mentioned. Um, and then you, know, you, have, you have more news breaking on um, that the, the banks borrowed a, a record amount during the discount window. And so you can see just how quickly the expectations for rate hikes have changed. And uh, that, that leads me into my, my, uh, my next piece here. Um, before I do that, do you have anything to add to that? No, I don't. I just think, you know, I think too many people take 
what the Fed says is biblical. Yeah. And a lot of the things are out of their control. So you could have everything hunky-dory one day and two weeks later, everything's changed. And that's what we experienced right here, yes. right? So even though the Fed says, hey, I think this is our path, people just need to understand that anything can happen between then and their next Fed meeting, right? right? That Absolutely. could force them to change path. And I kind of, you know, in our industry, that's like us saying, hey, you know, at the beginning of the year, this is what we think the market's going to do. But then we could get some information in February, for our example, and that changes our outlook or mm -hmm. our view. So this stuff is just constantly changing and evolving, mm -hmm. especially how quick information travels in today's day and age. Oh, yeah. um, again, just goes back to what we've talked about a lot this year is that it's just a different investment environment right now and things are moving so quickly. And that's why I, I hate getting the question of, hey, you know, what's XYZ stock going to do? What's the market going to do, you know, over the next six months or even this <laughs> year? And it's like, listen, your guess is as good as mine. If I, <laughs> if I had that information, I would gladly tell you. Um, I, get, I get that question a lot too. And, you, you know, know so I'll, give, it's I'll give an opinion, but a, a, a new piece of information, little asterisks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, another war could start. Uh, yep. There could be another virus. Um, another bank could go under. It's like the, the stuff just pops up seemingly uh, unannounced sometimes right absolutely so so i have two more two more research pieces and they're all kind of tied together this week so the next piece is a, it's a piece of research from from charlie uh, this is actually from yesterday charlie Bolelo at compound advisors and uh, the tweet shows the market expectation for fed funds rate as of now that chart that i that i showed that we just showed previously. That was from an article on the 17th, so right in the middle of all this, so that data was a little stale. Um, uh, Charlie's tweet says the following, the market is currently saying that the Fed's ninth rate hike last week, that 25 BIP we talked about earlier, to 4.75 to 5%, 5 that range, uh, will be the last hike of this cycle with a pause for the next FOMC meeting in May and rate cuts starting in the summer. So what's interesting to me is even though you know, a couple of weeks has gone by, that chart that we previously showed, it's, it's held pretty true. There's been less fluctuations over the past two weeks than there were in that March 6th to uh, you know, March 13, March 16 range. Um, so that's, that's the new expectations for the market, and this has held pretty, pretty stable over the past week or so. Um, and then my last piece is looking at market reversion. Um, and this data is coming from YCharts, but um, we build our own you know, pricing tables. And this is just a pricing table where, that I built in Excel. And you can put in numbers and study it and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But we'll throw this up um, for, for listeners. And what I wanted to do is just, it's a very simple analysis. Just like, hey, let's look at some reversion in the market. And so what, what this chart that we're going to show you has is it has the indices and it has all the major sectors. And this first column here is the prior year performance. So that's the performance of 2022. And then there are three periods. The, the, first, the first period is uh, from the end of the year to March 5th. Why March 5th? Because March 6th is like right, right before uh, all of this stuff starts to happen. Right. And then the second period is from March 5th to March 13th. Why March 13th? March 13th was when the market bottomed. 
mm-hmm. um, based on all the Silicon Valley news. Now, some of the wrap-up of, of the headlines were occurring at the votes following days, but the pricing action bottom of the 13th. And then the last period is the 13th to yesterday. And so you'll, everyone can see these, these numbers. And I highlighted a few sectors uh, that, that are of interest to me. So you see technology, consumer cyclicals, and communications were the worst performing sectors of the previous year. Mm-hmm. You see, prior to the Silicon Valley news, they were, they were leading the market. During the Silicon Valley news, they held up pretty well. They did not lead the market lower. They, they did go lower, but mm-hmm. they held up pretty well. And interestingly, after the Silicon Valley news, they held up and they actually outperformed. So those are more risky sectors in the market, which is just very interesting to me to see. You know, we have this big reversion trade from last year, you know, some underperformance, um, you know, probably some profit taking last year, I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, from, from long-term positions. But the market has really come back and, and supported these, some of these sectors that were so beat up last year. And then you have this big shock and this big scare, this, this you know, is it 2008 again? I mean, the headlines were pretty nasty. Um, but then you fast forward two weeks and some of the risk sectors hold up and actually go, up, go back and outperform. Um, now, the, the one caveat I'm going to put here that, that we can't see in, in this chart and that I know Mark and I are talking about behind the scenes is the breadth in the market in these sectors mm-hmm. is starting to kind of fall apart a little bit. So these, these sectors in the last two weeks are being held up from some of the big cap names, and we're starting to see some dispersion across other sectors. So that is a caveat. But big picture, generally speaking, uh, this, is, this is healthy. Yeah. Because if the market was truly freaking out in my opinion you would you would see that reversion trade in the last two weeks they're not worried about the reversion from the last the last week they're repositioning their portfolio to be much more defensive most right. likely they're going to higher dividend names they're going to utilities they're going to healthcare, and we didn't necessarily see that so what any thoughts yeah no this is great thanks for putting this together um i think it's it's very important to point out what you just did that a lot of the aggressive sectors are holding up pretty well um the nasdaq and you know the technology sector uh is is leading the way this year and that held true uh through the whole uh banking fiasco and i think that it's definitely a change of character from last year but that's also part of the transition from a bear market to a bull market is we start to see the sector rotation, right? Just like we saw at the top at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, we saw more value oriented sectors start to outperform and continue to outperform for 2022. In 2023, it's the opposite. We're seeing more money come into more of these risk on sectors, which Mm -hmm. is really good for the market. That's what we want to see. The only caveat in here is obviously the the banking industry and the financial sector were hit the most during this whole fiasco and if we look back at history nick it's very hard for the market in general to make significant advances without financials participating mm-hmm. and i'm not saying they have to outperform financials excuse me because we saw the decade from 2010 yeah. to 2020 that you know technology and discretionary mm-hmm. just obliterated the rest of the sectors in the mm-hmm. S&P 500 and we had a really strong market 
financials weren't outperforming, but they were rising. They weren't lagging like aggressively. They weren't falling. Yeah. So yeah. I think financials are kind of an, at an, a inflection point right now. Um, sitting right around the 2007, 2008 highs uh, before everything collapsed in, in 07 and 08. So I think it's kind of a make or break level for financials. But what it leads me to believe is that if technology and communications and consumer cyclical are holding up, that would lead me to believe that this level should hold and financials should have some sort of rebound, right? Yeah. And I really want to see financials participate mm -hmm. over the next couple of months if this truly is transitioning to mm -hmm. a new bull market. Unlikely to outperform. Unlikely to outperform. Um, in, in our opinion. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. The, the one point I'll add for listeners is when you look at that chart and financials, even in, even in this last period here, they, they fell again down... Was that 8.2%? Yeah, 8.2% from the 13th to the 29th. It's going to take a little time for the market to digest everything in that space in the different industries within financials. Mm -hmm. there's, still, there's still a lot to be resolved. Um, the FDIC is, is going to, um, what, what's it called, a special assessment I believe is what it's called. They're going to do a special assessment. How much is that going to impact big banks on their earnings? Their special assessment, essentially, they have to, uh, they have an insurance fund. They have to pay out the insurance fund to, to cover Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. And they're like, hey, we need to fill this fund back up. We're going to do a special assessment, which is essentially a fee to a bunch of the banks, mm -hmm. large cap banks. Yeah, really when good you have point an out. unknown fee, you're not going to like dive into that sector and say, let's buy it up. I mean, yeah. who knows how big the fee is, especially when you have it's going to be spread across the sector. You don't know where most of the fee is going to go to. Um, so there's still a lot to work out with that sector, which is why you have, you know, that price is still lingering. So just, just the background there, um, you know, we'll see what happens. There's still just, there's more news to come out for the, for the market to digest before I think finance can, can really stabilize and maybe kind of return. So and yeah. that's coming and, soon. And again, they're going to be the first to report uh, for earnings season coming up in a couple of weeks. So we're yeah. going to find out pretty quickly here. Yeah, two weeks, I think. April, uh, Mid-April. What's we'll going be, on? JP Morgan will we'll normally kick it off. I think it's April 14th, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, definitely going to be the most widely followed uh, earnings season for financials in, in quite some time. So Absolutely. Um, well, thanks for coming on, Nick, and filling in for Matt. I'm going to bring in Taylor Ledbetter, uh, one of our wealth advisors here at Jessup Wealth Management, to talk about her financial planning topic of the week surrounding best investment accounts for kids. So this is actually pretty timely, uh, Taylor, because my sister-in-law actually uh, just reached out to me last week because um, she is having a baby girl that is due... Uh, the beginning of May, and she was like, hey, you know, we're discussing college savings accounts and opening accounts for our kids. What, what do you recommend in this space? So uh, even though I got back to her and responded with my recommendations, I'm going to send her this uh, segment of the podcast because you might have some other accounts to enlighten us all about. Yeah, this will be a good one for her. Yeah. All right. So the first type of account I'm going to talk about is a custodial Roth IRA. So a parent can open and manage this account until the child turns 18 or 21 in some states. Mm -hmm. um, and what's nice about this is that the child and the parent can both contribute 
but they both have to have earned income for the year. Right. Just like any other retirement account, right? You have to have earned income to contribute to a retirement account. Exactly. Um, so yeah, both can contribute as long as there's earned income and they don't exceed the annual contribution limit of $6,500. Um, so I'm sure most people know that Roth IRAs do grow completely tax-free. And what's nice about this type of account is your child could potentially use some of that money for certain expenses. So normally there's a 10% early distribution penalty if Roth IRA funds are withdrawn before 59 and a half. Um, but a couple exceptions could be withdrawing funds for a first time home purchase um, or if those funds are for qualified education expenses. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think a custodial Roth IRA would be best if used for retirement. Um, I think the tax savings would be better if the kid would save that money for retirement opposed mm -hmm. to a down payment on a house or college. Right. And I think this would be useful. And again, you know, not every parent is going to know if their their child's going to go to college or not. But mm -hmm. if you have a child that, you know, they're in their middle school to high school years and it's looking more and more like that they don't have an interest in going to college, this might be a better option uh, just to get a head start on, on retirement savings for mm -hmm. them. Yeah, so. exactly. Um, and the next couple of accounts I'm going to talk about are going to be more geared toward the college savings. Um, so the next type of account is going to be a 529. Um, it's specifically used for college expenses. Um, there's no contribution limits, and something I like about the 529s is that there can be multiple contributors. Mm -hmm. So parents, grandparents, you know, aunts, uncles, um, and withdrawals are also tax-free as long as they're used for qualified education expenses. Mm -hmm. um, depending on the state you live in, some 529 contributions may be tax-deductible, um, or you could qualify for some type of tax credit, just depends on the state. Yep. And one thing I'll throw out there too, Taylor, is that um, although there aren't technically contribution limits to 529 plans, uh, they can be considered as a gift. Okay. Um, so for 2023, for example, uh, the maximum amount that you can gift an individual without incurring the gift tax expense is uh, $17,000 per year per individual. So I could give, you know, gift $17,000 to Taylor, $17,000 to Jenna, $17,000 to Nick. So that limit is, is per person. So if you have a married couple, double that for the amount that you can put into a 529 plan mm -hmm. without triggering that gift tax expense. So I just wanted to throw that out there for people. Yeah. And to add on to that, even if you go over uh, the 17,000, um, you'll have to note that on a gift tax return. Right. But there still wouldn't be any gift tax technically due. Um, would just go against your lifetime exemption. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, so in my opinion, I think the 529 plan is the best college savings plan out there. There's just a lot of advantages, um, 
And the next type of account I'll talk about is another college plan, but I still think 529s are the best. Yeah, I think they are too. And I, you know, I think what's going or being talked about in Congress right now is there's legislation being discussed that potentially if a kid doesn't go to college, a certain amount of that can be rolled into a Roth IRA mm -hmm. for the, uh, the kid or whoever the beneficiary was. So it'll give people more flexibility and have people be at least more comfortable that, hey, if I save all this money in this college savings fund and my kid doesn't go to college, they're still going to get some sort of benefit out mm -hmm. of it. So, yeah. And just to add on to that, for a 529, you know, say you have one kid that doesn't decide to go to college, but you have another kid that does, mm -hmm. you could name the other child as the beneficiary of your 529. Yeah, correct. It's really easy to transfer it to, to siblings, to other family members, back to yourself if a parent wanted to go and get, you know, higher level education, like a master's mm -hmm. or something. So uh, very easy to do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the next college account I'm going to talk about is called the Coverdell Education Savings Account. Um, we call it a, a CESA for short. So again, this is specifically for education expenses. Contributions grow completely tax-free. Withdrawals are tax-free um, if used for education. But one big difference is that the maximum contribution to a CESA mm -hmm. is $2,000 per year per beneficiary, um, and that's not tax deductible. Right. Um, I think another really big difference is that there are income phase-out limits. So if you're single and your modified adjusted gross income is between 95,000 and 110,000 per year, um, or you are married filing joint and your income is between 190,000 and 220 per year, um, you will have a reduced contribution limit. Yeah, so there's a phase out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, and I think unless you have like a really specific situation, um, you know, the 529 accounts, just the, the, the path to go on. I don't know mm -hmm. if you feel any differently about that, but it just, just makes sense. I agree. I mean, I think it's kind of clear that yeah. 529 <laughs> has better advantages than um, the Coverdell account. And, you know, the Coverdell, there's no tax deduction as well. Right. Um, so I just think the 529s are a lot better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the last type of account I'm going to talk about it's a uniform gift to minors account um, or uniform transfer to minor account. Now, these are custodial trust accounts, um, and the parent can open one up on behalf of their child um, and obviously manage them until the child reaches a certain age, an age of majority. So for the uniform gift to minor accounts, that age of majority is 18 in Ohio. And for the uniform um, transfer minor account, the age is 21. Now, again, there's no contribution limits. They are subject to those gifting limits, mm -hmm. but technically no contribution limit. Um, and you can have more than one person contributing money to the account. What's nice about these is that there's a lot more flexibility because these accounts are not specifically for education. Mm -hmm. um, but on the flip side, there's also no tax advantage right. for these accounts. Exactly. So I love the flexibility of these accounts. Um, it's comparable to having maybe an individual account. Yeah. Essentially. 
Right, that the parents just the parent can control it until obviously the the child reaches uh, the age of majority, which is either 18 or 21. And that's kind of nice, too, because some parents will be like, yeah, at 18, I think, you know, my kids are, you know, uh, are going to be able to make these decisions for themselves and, and take over the account at 18. But some of them might be like, eh, three more years might not be uh, such a bad thing. So we're going to mm -hmm. go with the, the UTMA or the UTMA where the age is, is 21. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I would say if you're if you're not sure if your kid's going to go to college, this might be the best route to go down yeah. versus the 529 maybe. Right, exactly. And it's nice because the parent still has control of the account to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this could just help the education process. So even though the parent's still controlling it and making the decisions, they can bring their child in and, and teach them about this stuff as mm -hmm. the account is getting contributions and, and as it's invested in the market. So another really good option if we people don't want a specific education savings account, right? Exactly. I agree a hundred percent. So, well, sweet. Well, thanks for, uh, enlightening us on savings accounts for kids, Taylor. I think that'll be really helpful for, for a lot of people. Um, and again, uh, you know, just remember a lot of these accounts, um, kid needs to have a social security number, uh, to be opened up in their name or, or listed as a beneficiary. So I know, some people are, are really eager that the day a new child's born, they want to open up a 529 account or a bank account or something like that. But uh, just make sure that uh, they have their social security number um, and then you'll be good to go from there. Um, so thanks, everybody, for tuning into episode number 194 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and we will be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.